I don't think films have the power to change the world. I, I've never thought that. But I do think they have the power to change people, individuals. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Alexander Morato takes us behind the scenes of his new drama from Brazil, Seven Prisoners. The film tells the story of 18-year-old Mateus, who accepts a job in faraway Sao Paulo to provide a better life for his family. Once there, Mateus rebels after discovering that he and the other young men are held as prisoners to work off their travel expenses. He is ultimately forced to choose between helping the very man who imprisoned him or risking his and his family's future. Seven Prisoners was screened as part of the DGA's Global Cinema Series, which aims to spotlight landmark foreign films by presenting screenings of contemporary, classic, and independent films, as well as conversations with their directors. Mr. Murato's other directorial works include the feature Socrates and the short documentaries Our Brazil, One Missed Call, and Nowhere to be Found. He was also the recipient of the 2010 DGA Student Film Awards Jury Prize for Best Latino Student Filmmaker East Region for his short film, The Other Side. Following the Global Cinema Series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Morato spoke with fellow director Victoria Hochberg about filming Seven Prisoners. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Good to see all of you. Good evening. I'm going to have to read mine because we were, t- we were gabbing so much out there that I didn't have a chance to rehearse my little session, so I'll read them. Read away. Thank you. We know you're dedicated to illuminating the profound inequities and hardships of the world. Was there one event or circumstance that triggered your wanting to make a film about human trafficking? Uh, thank you, and that's a really good question. And And the answer is... Yes. Um, so it was late at night, uh, in 2017 and I was in a post-production of Socrates, which is my first feature and I couldn't sleep, which is pretty normal for me. I turned the TV on and there was a special on, uh, Globo news about modern day enslavement and human trafficking. And I really just couldn't believe my eyes because uh, some of the footage I was seeing was filmed within the last few years. And this is 2021 in Sao Paulo, which is a, a, a global alpha city. And here I am seeing footage of people literally chained. They, 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 one, one of the people I saw had a chain on, on his ankle. And I, I just couldn't believe what I saw. So I, I of course, I, I, I stayed up and I started sketching out ideas. And, and the next day, I, I knew I was going to make it into a film. Wow, good for you. Um, this is the most carefully and beautifully constructed script in terms of its architecture that takes us on a moral journey from him, him, on a moral journey from near sainthood. I mean, this is a young man who kisses his mother's hand. Probably every mom in America would love for her son to do that when he's saying goodbye. 
to a person who now kind of moves over to the dark side. I know you work with another writer. What was the process in creating all of the steps that his journey required? I worked with Taina Manteasu, who uh, was my co-writer on Socrates, and I wanted to work with her again. Um, now, Taina, I've, I met her in 2016 when I was making Socrates, which I made in partnership with UNICEF in Brazil's, in Sao Paulo's low-income communities. And she was, the, the, whole, the whole idea of that film was that it would be made the whole cast and crew would be young people from these communities. So if we're telling a story about them, they would also be making the film. And, uh, and so she was brought on to shadow me and be my assistant. Here she is, 18 years old, and just um, naturally so gifted. I, I was sitting on the computer and I would be writing lines and, and uh, you know, sometimes people don't want to offend the director, but she would just look at it. She'd be like, that line, that line's not good. You need to change that. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, well, what wow. would you recommend? And she would stop and then, and she would say it. And I'd be like, oh my God, that is the best thing I've ever heard. So it, it started with just a couple scenes. And then before I knew it, it was many scenes. And I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stop working with her. So by the end of that process, of course, she, she was fully on board as a co-writer and with wow. seven prisoners, we just, we became friends and, and we knew we wanted to work together again. So well, that's good how for that you happened. for recognizing her talent. That's She's wonderful. really remarkable. Yeah. So you couldn't leave any of the steps out. I mean, it's very clear that this is like a chess, mm -hmm. a chess game. Yeah. Every for, for, for every move for one side is countered by resistance on the other side. Yeah. So was that the main problem or challenge that you had? I mean, you couldn't leave anything out because, you know, they're all balanced. The two of them are balanced. I'm talking about Manuel um, um, and, and uh, Samuel Sa um, and Luca. Oh, oh no, Mateo and Luca. Yeah. Well, the whole film is about power and it's like a chess game. Your right. turn, my turn, and um, every every move that somebody makes, uh, the other character has to, especially Mateo's, he has to counteract somehow. Mateus, right. And so it's always a, a question of what will he do next, and um, you know sometimes we didn't even know the answer. Like, what would he do next? Well, I don't know. The ending took a really long time to come up with. Um, that was the, I mean, endings are always hard, but uh, first we didn't know how do we end it? Does he, does he free them? Does he become one of them? Um, how, how, how do we do that? And, uh, eventually we found the answer, but it, that was the last thing that, um, came to us. Yes. And the burn mark from the cigarettes, almost like a, 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 a mark that he will we, never forget. He has to live with never, it forever. Right. Let's hope yeah. it lasts on a scar forever on his arm because it's, it, it was really, then you have this wonderful twinning of, um, Mateus and Luca. They, you know, one starts out as a sort of saintly young guy and the other one starts out as a mean guy and they sort of meet in the middle because we start to really not like Luca particularly, but we get to know him better. We get to understand him. So that was, I thought very, 
clever. I'm sure, I'm assuming you did that on purpose because. Well, I wasn't trying to be clever. I was trying to understand. I mean, I didn't mean that. I do not. No, no, no. I know. But I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone wakes up and says, you know what, when I grow up, I want to traffic humans for a living. (laughs) I don't think, I I don't, I don't believe that to be, you know, the natural state of a person. So my question was always like, how do I not judge this character? And it was very hard for Rodrigo Santoro, the actor playing him, how, how for him to also not judge that character because we want to judge that person. So we, we had to stop and we had to think about what is he, why is he doing this? Yes. You know, uh-huh. how do we help us not judge him? Yeah. Well, they, they become very similar. And he says, I grew up next to a sewer. My mother had to do all this work. He was, when his boss whistles and in the scene in the end, the boss is whistling his old boss and he's like a dog. Because even to, the boss has a boss. That's right. That's true to, to, to everything in life. I even find. the film business. The, the, uh, the bad sleep well, the, the great Kurosawa film is right. something I thought was thinking a lot about when it came to the different layers of power. Yes, that's scary. But there, there is no ultimate boss. I mean, except your own conscience, I guess, at the end. That's really who you have to answer to. Or if you're religious, you have a higher being. I know your first film, Socrates, won the John Cassavetes Award for Best Film for Under Five. 100,000? It was nominated. It won the Someone to Watch Award for okay. Discovery. Okay, you were nominated for that, John Cassavetti, and, and you made Socrates for 20,000. Explain that, and how did you, and explain that, how, how did that happen? Well, it, it happened that I was, um, I was young, uh, out of college, and I was desperate, desperate to make a movie, and, uh, I wrote a script and I took it to uh, um, many labs and I was working all sorts of jobs. I was working uh, uh, in a grocery store. I was waiting tables and then I was assistant editing and doing night shifts and, and, and working on the scripts on nights and weekends or days and weekends if it's the night shift. And, um, and you know, I was just desperate, desperate to make a movie. And I would, I would fly out here to LA to do these labs and residencies and, and the thing I would hear um, uh, everywhere I took the script was some um, great script, but no to financing, which I think is something everybody who who's a filmmaker hears a lot. But, you know, what, what, what I started getting rather perturbed because uh, a lot of my peers who were in the same groups, their films were getting financed and made. And I couldn't understand why mine wasn't. And I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried. And it just wouldn't happen. So finally I said, you know what, I'm just going to have to do this myself. So I, I just worked really hard. I saved up some cash, about $10,000. And then I called all my uncles and aunties and they put 500 there, a thousand there. And then I put that money in a hat and I flew with it to Brazil. And, uh, that was the budget of the movie out of necessity, you know, because if they, if you can't get the money, then you have to find a way to make the movie. That's right. That's, yeah. That's an, that's extraordinary because $20,000 for a film, that's... A, for production, yeah. Yeah, that's... Actually, we spent 17000 and then we <laughs> saved a little bit more in case we would need it for posts. It's really remarkable what the young people in the, in those communities could do. And you had a, a, a 
cast, a crew from the, from the organization that you were working with? The whole crew, uh, I mean, it was just incredible to see how much they grew, uh, because on, on day one, uh, it was, a, it was an educational incubator. So right. w- the whole program works with 16 to 20 year olds from the communities that you see on the screen in, in that film, which you also see in this film to a certain extent. And, and, um, they don't have opportunities to express themselves through the arts. And this program is very competitive. 500 young people apply every year to get in and they can only pick 20. And, uh, those lucky 20, uh, make films and they take turns crewing on each other's movies. So everyone gets a chance to write, direct. And then, and then for my first film, we thought, why don't we do this as a feature? And so I remember on day one, they didn't know how to use the the clapper. So I showed them, I explained, this is how it's done. This is why it's done. You know, it's for sync. And then, um, you know, by day 30, when everyone's really exhausted, they're just production ninjas like I need the van parked here right now thank you (laughs) so it was great to see that transformation and a lot of them ended up going into film I was gonna ask yes yeah do you have other directors who are now vying with you for money to make films what do you mean you have like from the institute any of the young people who helped you with the film are they now in the business, are they filming? My co-writer is in the business. Right, okay. Uh, 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 Taina Montes was in the business. She's been in the writer's room for a Netflix series. She's doing a Globo series. She's oh, she's God. doing very well. I'm very happy. And she's only like, what, 21, 22 oh, now. Goodness. It's pretty remarkable. So it's- and then Christian Malieros, who plays Mateos in the film, he, was all, he also plays the lead in Socrates. And he's also the lead in Sintonia, which is a massive, massive... Brazilian hit TV show. So he went from like a a couple hundred followers on Instagram, which I think he was like up at almost to a million at one point. So, and we try to have dinner, uh, uh, before production and we couldn't find anywhere to sit down because it was just throngs of wait staff, like trying to take selfies with him. So finally we went to like this really shishi rooftop restaurant and everybody left us alone. And I finally understood why celebrities go to these really fancy places. It's to just be left alone. Yeah. And yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a problem that I think a lot of people would love to have. So I'm not going to feel too not bad. Not me. Well, okay. You may have to deal with it though. I have a feeling. I'm behind the camera. Okay. Okay. I don't know. Uh, you had worked with Christian Malieros, um, uh, and, but Rodrigo Santoro, Luke, Luca, is a pretty big star. How did you convince him to join you in the second film? Oh, he's such a phenomenal actor. And, you know, when I was uh, uh, living in Brazil and doing high school when I was uh, 14, I was watching a lot of his films and I was so blown away. And I saw this terrific film, 2003, Hector Babenko, Karanjiru. And he plays a trans sex worker in that film. Was that the one about the prison? Exactly. And he's just phenomenal in it. And I realized like, I mean, he at the time he had a reputation for being I think what Time Magazine or something, sexiest man alive. But when I saw oh. that performance, you know, that's when I was like, wait a second, this, there's there's so much dimension and depth to him, and he can do so much more than playing a leading man. He's he's got real, real. Uh, he's a real dynamic actor, and he's and wonderful. and 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 he gives a hundred and 
20%. I mean, he made this Cuban film. It was Cuba's entry for the Oscars some years ago. And um, he learned Russian for the role. He plays a translator in the film. I mean, who learns Russian for a role? Uh, so I, 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 it was never a question. I, I, I said, I want to work with him. And I'm so glad he said yes. Yes. Well, De Niro might have tried to learn Russian, actually. I mean, to get so immersed, you know, I'm, I'm teasing. But um, he's, he's... I'm sure he would love the comparison. I'll tell him you well, said you that. Well, you tell him that. I said that, right. He, he really is. You know, I, I've seen this film a couple of times, so I see the transition and I see him, especially at the end, the scene with his family and his mother. He has a similar... That's what I meant about the twinning. He has a similar relationship with his mother as our boy does as Mateus does it's really was really very the audition for the the woman uh, uh who plays his mother Cecilia Amingmelu she's actually a casting director but oh. um Fernando Morales recommended her he said oh you should try her out she's also a terrific actress and so I put him in a room and I just filmed them just chatting together as as mother and son I was like she's just you, you guys are just you know Buffalo 66 you're just spanding time and um and uh, nobody got the joke um and 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 so they just were talking it, for, was, it was it yeah. was a very authentic scene it felt completely organic and it was um so now you have two actors on the opposite ends of the experience spectrum one twice the age of the other and twice as famous what was it like working with these two? Did they have different actor techniques that you had to accommodate to? Like I, I'm a, I'm an act, I'm a method guy. I, I don't want to rehearse where the other ones, that kind of thing. How, how did you, how did that work? Or was that something that you had to deal well, with? Well, sure. They had different Christian Malieros and uh, uh, Rodrigo Santoro are, are two totally different actors from completely different right. generations. And, and, but, um, you know, I think at the, at the end of the day, everyone was really committed to getting it right. So um, they both adapted to, to each other and, and I adapted to them and, and we had a really wonderful time on set because everybody was, I mean, here's the thing. One of the actors in this film is a survivor of modern day enslavement and human trafficking. We, I cast him because I wanted to make sure that we would have somebody who actually lived through that. Um, because when, when you have somebody who, who, who actually lived through that on the set every day, it just reminds you and it puts you at the, t you just, you have to do this film justice. Right. And it reminds everyone how important the, the topic is. It's not just about being on a set and making a movie. It's about something much bigger than, not, and, and so I think having, uh, Joseph there on set um, really reminded everyone of how, how much we just had to collaborate to get this. Was he to work. one of the boys of the original? He's group? one of the young Bolivian men that Mateos chooses in the factory. He opens that door and there the man is pushing them out into a van. He's he's one of the young men. There. I see. So did the other actors talk to him about his experience and ask him? I mean, is that is that how they interact? I made sure of it. I mean, he yeah. sat down and he told uh, uh, them his story and, and I was there. I heard it too. And and I at first I was worried, is he going to be prepared to talk about this or, yeah. and do the film? And, and I asked him and he said, no, I, w I want to do it. And he wanted to do it because uh, he 
he he wants people to know. And yes. I think it's really brave of him. But in my research, I, I, I did a really extensive research phase for the film. And I was shadowing a researcher at the UN who was interviewing survivors of human trafficking. And um, one thing I noticed with most of the survivors is that they really want to talk about it. They, they don't want anybody else to go through that. So um, Good. for me, I think it's, it's just, it's, it's really uh, a beautiful thing to, to see them represented on the screen that way Yeah, and to see their work that way. Well, I think it was very intelligent of you to bring that element in because we, when you're on a set, it's not real. I mean, but that made it so much more real. Of course, the environment was real. Your location was amazing. Um, okay, let's just... Well, and my production designer, William Valduga, he built that location. We couldn't find a junkyard because um, they're all active locations. They're, they, they live off of um, scrap metal. So you can't just tell them we're going to shut you down now for, you know, I several see. months to shoot a movie. So that was built. Yeah. On an empty lot or just... It was built on a, on a, on a lot, exactly. Wow. And I think he did a phenomenal job. I mean, he did so much research. He was, and, and he was like a research ninja. He would find, <laughs> he, he was like, this is how many enslaved people there are in, in Brazil. This yeah. is what it looks like. And this is what we're going to do. And mm -hmm. everything, even just the little tiny details of the concrete on the wall, which wasn't even concrete, it was like plywall. So... I think yeah. he did a phenomenal job. It, he did. It, it was, of course, and then learning how to strip the rubber off the off the copper. That whole thing had such a completely real. That was Taina's idea because um, her her father used to work for a telecommunications company um, fixing wires, and and he. And she was talking to him and he said, well, that's what the, uh, people steal it all the time. And right. we went to all sorts of junkyards to do research. One of the junkyards we went to while we were there talking to the junkyard owner, the cops showed up with a bunch of stolen copper wire and sold it to the guy. That's when I, I thought, oh, oh, gosh, the cops need to be incorporated in right. this somehow. Um, but uh, that was a scary scene when when they say we know we can figure out there's a lady who lives down the road and we can go and get to her, that kind of. Yes. That became really the 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 scythe over their heads. It's a system. Yeah, it's it's a system. That's exactly right. Okay. Um yeah, I was going to ask you about the 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 young person who had been trafficked. Um in terms of your shoot, let's, you know, we're we're always we will always want to know these questions people in the guild. How many how many shooting days did you have? Um uh, I got the feeling that you could move very, very fast. I think it was handheld. And because you said you desi he designed the set, so that made it, I'm sure, a lot faster well, for you. Well, normally you could, but I do a lot of takes. Um, and so w we, would, we would spend a lot of time on the scenes. And sometimes, you know, they were improvising a lot. So sometimes for continuity, somebody changes it. And all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe we got to get that master again you know because that way was better but because it's not I like giving them a lot of freedom to sort of move around and, and do their thing right. but we shot for 32 days well it was going to be a 32 day shoot but then we for some reason we just the rain was a, just a real real hassle on the whole movie uh, I can't tell you how many times we just have to stop shooting and wait it out for continuity and uh, we got the worst rainfall in recorded history in Sao Paulo on, 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 I think our like 
10th or 12th day and uh, the, uh, the crew couldn't, wasn't, on, I show up on set, the crew's not there and I'm like, where's the crew? And, and then I start getting text messages of pictures of the crew, like a standing, like on top of inundated cars, just floating on the highway. And I'm like, Oh, there's the crew. So, um, we, we ended up getting a couple of extra days because of the rain situation. Wow. Okay. Do you think that's climate change or does that just. You tell me. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Look, we're sitting here with masks on. Something's going crazy wacko in this country, in this world. I, I agree. Yes. Um, Okay, so yes, uh, a couple of other questions. Uh, I did. I was going to ask about improv, imp- how much of this was impro- improvised, but it didn't feel like it because it was so beautifully cut and so precise. In each scene was so beautifully structured. So I thought, oh, he probably didn't. But I'm glad to hear that that you did because it again Thank it had you. such a real feeling you really felt you were there with the guys when he said we need showers it's like yeah you know I'm feeling the same thing kind of um so you didn't have that many locations you had that one big place and then the two places where they get new victims the bar so did were you able to move around quickly were you able to just get a lot done well we started shooting in the junkyard and that because that was we tabbed it up and by page count, it was exactly 71% of the script. Wow. So, um, yes, I, it was 71% of the script. So um, we started at the junkyard and we shot it in chrono- chronological order oh, in the junkyard with the exception of the night scenes, which we did in a grueling week of night shoots. Did you shoot in chronological order for a reason? Well, yeah, I find it's somehow easier for everyone to follow the emotions and track the arcs. So, but I mean, the dream would be to shoot the whole thing chronologically, but that, but that's not possible. And, and also in the end, in the editing, I mean, it all gets moved around too. So you could say nothing's really chronological. Um, okay. Well, actually, um, most films are not, you know, you think it's people, a lot of people not in the business don't know that things are not, or they don't usually know that things are not shot chronologically. And that's the, that's kind of one of the mysteries of how an actor can actually get to that spot. That's what, well, we finished the film yesterday, the last scene, and now I have to shoot the second scene. I mean, that's I don't weird. know how they do it. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know how I do it. I'm like, wait a second. How should they feel right now? Well, it's tough to shoot out of chronological order. You know, it's tough. Yeah. You, it, what about the script supervisors? They've got the worst part of that, keeping everything. Right My script supervisor did. Uh, I mean, she was she was very good. and And I told her to if I ever cross the line, yell at me. And, and so she never yelled, but you know, the one time did we you crossed, ever cross the line on purpose <laughs> oh, uh, once. So you said, <laughs> but, um, I'm sure there's oh, all sorts funny. of line crossing. I mean, when you're shooting loosely like that, you're going to cross the line. Well, again, because it's so organic and you're handheld and you're following everybody, y- you don't feel it. You don't, you know, usually say, uh Oh, he just, you know, if you're a director, you always know when someone's doing that, but I didn't see anything wrong. Um, how did you work with your DP? 
if you're if you're handheld and improvised, how did how did that work out? Tell me what your relationship was there. Well, I worked with uh, my DP João Gabriel de Queiroz on my first film, and so this was our our second collaboration. And he he's um he has a dancing background, modern dance oh and goodness. ballet. And so he, wow. he's a young guy and, and, and he's very flexible. And so he found um, the lightest possible camera that he can get. And then he was just sort of, I mean, he does some crazy stuff with the camera. He'll like, he'll like go all the way back like this and then forward. And I don't know how he does it, but he'll do like the splits sometimes to get the right angle. No, um, it's, I know it's funny, but it's true. <laughs> and, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's just it, when you're working with an artist like that, I think you, you also kind of give them freedom and, and he moves the camera around a lot. He'll be like, he'll be over here with you. And then all of a sudden, wait, maybe I want to be over here. And, um, and all of that is not, none of that's controlled. That's just him feeling it in the moment. And then we would do variations of that. Like, and some, I don't know how he does it, but somehow he remembers which lines he covered. Oh, that's so six crazy. or seven takes in, I'm like, you didn't get that line. And he's like, no, I, I did get it. It's on take two. Oh my and God. so a great memory goes a long way. Because I was going to say that might've caused problems in the editing room, but if he's on the mark that way, then that was, that's amazing. That's, I'm assuming you're going to keep working with him. Very talented person. Okay. Um, uh, did I ask this? What was your biggest production challenge or difficulty that you faced? Was it the rain or was there something else? Well, it was a very, we, we were going to get, I think, three months of prep. But then uh, due to scheduling uh, around actor availability, the option was going to be either shoot it in in six weeks from now instead of three months from now or oh wait until 2022. And, I, I, and we, 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 me and, and Rami and Barani, one of my producers and my mentor, we talked about it and it's like, whenever you hold anything, it just, it doesn't happen. And I mean, seriously, I wrapped this production on March. What was it? It was the day the lockdown started. I remember I was going to get on a flight and then I got an app while I'm getting ready to go to the airport, a notification on my app. It said, um, your flight has been canceled. I looked it up. I'm like, why did they cancel my flight? And, and it wasn't that they canceled the flight. They, the whole airline declared, declared bankruptcy and shut its whole fleet down. (laughs) So then finally I got on another flight the next night out. And when I landed back here in California, the airport was completely empty. I was the only person in the airport. Oh my and God. it was the first day of the California lockdown. March 2015 or 21, I can't remember. That's amazing. That's, yeah, well, you have to be, of course, be prepared for any unexpected contingency, but uh, that's really... Well, all of that, you said what was the biggest challenge. I think the biggest challenge was just setting up a massive production in such a short amount of time. Yeah. And, and so that, uh, but I mean, with a great crew, you can do it. It's, it's, of course, it's a strain on everybody, but everyone was up to the task. And thank God that we were, we had to do it that way because I wouldn't, we wouldn't be watching this movie right now. Oh, thank God. You're right. We're, we're very happy that you've worked it out. Um, We don't have to talk too much about editing or post-production, but um, here's something. Watching your film, one automatically thinks of human slavery, racial slavery in our own countries. 
but also of the Holocaust or any prisoner of war situation where human nature is such, it's built into us that we will often do anything just to stay alive. So the steps that Luca takes work hand in glove with our own predisposed human tendencies. How do you change that? Well, I don't, I don't know how to change that. Uh, if I knew, I wouldn't be making the movie. Um, I think, you know, I don't think s films have the power to change the world. I, I've never thought that. But I do think they have the power to change people, individuals. I mean, I know films have changed me. Um, I don't mean just the movies. I mean, movies specifically have changed me. So um, I guess with the film, I would hope that it's, uh, touching everyone in a different way, hopefully. And, and hopefully I think we, I didn't know that, um, modern day enslavement was happening to this degree in the world. The UN estimates that there's 40 million people oh living in these conditions in the world today. So, so I wish I knew that many years ago. So I thought in making the film, I, I hope other people who didn't know about it to this degree or, or can learn about it somehow. Well, I think that's important. That's exactly what I think has to happen. Slow, even if it's slow, change takes a while. It is not as fast. Americans, we're, we're very impatient, but change takes generations. But the film lets us see, one of the questions was, how do you want us to feel at the end of the film? And I, I know how I felt. I felt, what can I do? And I, I, I think just being aware of it is the beginning of change. You know. We have a, a New York Times writer, Nicholas Kristof. He's running for governor, and he he's been involved. He's been reporting on trafficking of girls in in I think India. He's written for ten years about this, and he's finally running for governor now. I'm assuming you're not going to do that. You're going to keep making films, I hope. Um, but I, I do think your film will have an impact. I do. I, you can't change the world, but you can change some of us. You can at least. And educate some of us. And I think that's the first step. Don't you? Otherwise, well, you, I hope well, you thank do. you. And uh, I, 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 I certainly hope that it starts a larger discussion. And, and oh, especially I, now in Brazil, they're just in the last um, year, couple of years, sadly, there have been some changes to laws in Brazil that protect people uh, in, in these yes. conditions. And so I'm, um, the, the fact is it's actually getting worse at the moment in Brazil. And, and I feel like we're going in the completely wrong, wrong direction. Yes. So I hope we can start talking about that and hopefully turn it around. Well, Alexandra is, is about to start another film in the United States. And so we, I'm still writing it, so I don't well, know he's if about, about to, to start. He's about to continue writing this new film in the U S. Um, and, that means that we'll be able to see more of him. So we want to thank him for being so talented and so articulate and for being with us this evening and wishing him, we wish him the very, very best. Thank you so much. Okay. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from our Global Cinema series, check out episode 310 featuring director Philip Lacote discussing his film Night of the Kings with Alice Stapleton. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. 
We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 